0: So let me uh, pray for us, and and we will get into it. Lord God, we are thankful. We're thankful to continue studying union with Christ, justification, righteousness, a God who does in fact acquit the guilty in some magnificent way in a story that could only be drawn up by God. And so Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear here on the first day of Advent, technically, first Sunday of Advent, as we continue to cultivate a sense of longing and anticipation. Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Okay, so we are going to finish up our discussion of union with Christ as it relates to justification today. I'm committed to doing so. I told you that this would probably be the largest—this is the one that we would spend the most time on, how union with Christ relates to justification, and then we'll talk about a variety of other things that the union, union with Christ informs. But last time we looked at three passages together that I suggest argued that the righteousification, which is what justification is— Righteousification that happens in a believer is not, contra our Catholic friends, any kind of infusion of righteousness or virtue, but it is to be counted as though you are righteous, credited uh, with righteousness. So that while I am actually still a sinner and I am not yet perfect, I am credited, I am seen as though I am a sinner, uh, as I, excuse me, I'm seen as though I am righteous and not Uh, someone who is unrighteous. We'll move through them very quickly. I just want to very briefly rehearse them. One was Romans 4, 1 through 8. And these, by the way, were not the only texts that could have been turned to. They're just the ones that really, really pop out, particularly after having already gone through Romans chapter 3. I talk about Abraham's being counted righteous, not because of his righteousness, but because of his faith that was counted to him as righteousness we looked at Romans 5 where we saw the relationship between Adam and everyone who's in Adam being condemned even though they didn't actually sin because they weren't there with Adam they are credited you would say for Adam's sin and so similarly Christ is the second Adam all who are in Christ are credited with his righteousness in both cases not something either Adam's sin is not something we actually did Christ's righteousness, we certainly did not live Christ's righteous life. And so just as we are credited with Adam's guilt, we're credited with Christ's righteousness. Um, and then we went to 2 Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that explained our understanding of, uh, confirmed really, our understanding of Romans 5, that of that kind of made to be language, the idea, of course, is that Jesus was not actually sinful. So to say that he was made to be sin, does not mean that he was made a sinner. He was counted as though he was a sinner, so that people who were actually sinners could be counted as those who were righteous. See how that works? Really clean. You know, if you if you forget all of the proof texts, you might say, for. Uh, alien forensic justification we talked about what those words mean 2nd Corinthians 5 21 and then the passage that we are about to turn to Uh, the final text uh, and again it's not the only text that could be explored but it is a very important one and that is Philippians chapter 3 8 and 9 so turn with me if you would I can't remember what's um, are there any slides on here where did I put up here? Oh, yes, I put the text. That's right. That's right. Okay. Turn with me or look up there. By the way, I'm starting to put these verses up here because I noticed that people aren't turning to them, anyways. So I think I felt like this is would be helpful and uh for some people who don't it just makes it easier. Okay. Philippians 3 8 and 9. Paul is talking about his work, you might say, as a Jew, how righteous he was, his righteousness under the law. And then he says, Whatever I had, verse seven, I count as loss for the sake of Christ, indeed I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, then count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And then here's the here's the, the verse that, where, where the payload is. And be found in him. There's the in him language. That's the in Christ language. Be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. Whoa, that sounds like a righteousness that's not my own. When I read not having a righteousness of my own, it sounds like what it's saying is, I have a righteousness that's not my own. That's an alien righteousness. That doesn't belong to me. I don't have it. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is to say, that comes from obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And people debate how to structure the Greek right there, but essentially it's the righteousness on the foundation of faith and or through the instrument of faith, however you want to say it. But the point is, A couple things here. Again, the in Christ language, so that grounds us in union with Christ, that that phrase, in Christ. Paul has considered all of his greatest accomplishments nothing so that he could be found in Christ. And then he makes a very, very strong contrast. And it's not clear how it could be stronger. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not something that I can lay claim to. I'm not standing because of my right living and my right posture. That would be a righteousness of my own, even if it was imperfect. I could still claim an imperfect righteousness like Job, who was a blameless man. Okay? That's not what he's saying. A righteousness that is not his at all. But a righteousness that comes through faith In Christ, clarified by, that is to say, the righteousness from God. So this is a righteousness that comes from God to Paul. It's not his, but he has it because he's in Christ. A righteousness of God, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. That is to say, faith is the instrumental means by which this righteousness happens. And so, uh, I think that taken together, especially again, if you for let me just back up and say one more time. Um, If you're if you're again wondering, you're saying, well, where is justification in here? What's the answer to that question? Why why you say, Tyler? Great, we're talking about union with Christ, justification. Why why is this a proof text for it? Who knows? What's the answer? The righteousness part. The righteousness part. And why? Why? Righteous. That's it. Remember, the Sunay, righteousness, justified, right. justification is it's, the, it's It's righteousness that happens to you. And it can either happen in terms of an infusion, you might say, or a declaration over you. It's kind of like being righteousified, and we're understanding that as uh, being counted as righteous and not being infused with righteousness, like our Catholic friends. And if you weren't here last time, go back and read. I read from the Catholic Catechism and the Council of Trent. That is the alternate uh, that they would believe that we are justified through faith in Christ. And what they would mean is, by that righteousification, that you are infused with righteousness. And so that's why you have to argue, you can't just agree at the level of semantics, you have to say, oh, what are we talking about, though? Is justification something that's infused, or is it something that is we are counted as, that we are credited as, even though we are actually not? Any questions about that? Just that concept, or or or, or this text in particular, how that supports the idea of justification, but also... A justification that is credited for a righteousness that we don't actually have—that isn't doesn't inhere in us. Any questions about that? No questions. Fairly clear. Does it seem fairly straightforward? Okay. So we've seen multiple texts now that suggest not only that the righteousification, the justification that happens um, isn't being made just or being made perfectly upright only to ruin it and then have to go through penance and sacraments to get your clothes clean again, so to speak. Um, but we've also seen that this is language that's intimately tied to union with Christ, which keeps justification from being a bare legal fiction. What on earth is a bare legal fiction? I was just reading someone this week, or was maybe last week, who was criticizing. A certain understanding of justification, Protestant, generally, a general understanding of justification as being a bare legal fiction. And I think that honestly, this is how a lot of people explain it. Here's what a bare legal fiction is. God is judge. Okay? And here you are, over there, Hunter, sadly, you're the person who's just right here. Guilty. Guilty. In the courtroom. God looks over there and sees Jesus. And says, you know what? My son did something over there. You're guilty, but you know what? Not guilty. That is a legal fiction. Why? Because he is guilty. There's nothing about him that's righteous. There's no connection whatsoever. It is simply God saying, because I said so, even though it's not the case, I make the rules over. Now, if that was what the Bible says i I could accept that, but there's there's a different story with union with Christ. It keeps it from being a bare legal fiction here 's the story with union with Christ. So here I am the judge okay it's a very pretentious thing to say, I suppose i'm pretending myself to myself be. but now here 's hunter, but instead of Christ being over there and we 're looking at his work detached, christ is hunter is in a mystical way that you and I cannot explain, united to Christ. United to Christ. Union with Christ. And so when I look over here, it's not a bare legal fiction. God isn't just making something up. He's saying, no, no, no. I am declaring hunter righteous because... There's some explanatory architecture here. Because... My son is in union with Him, and my son is righteous, and therefore I can declare him righteous. Okay, so it doesn't change—it uh, it doesn't change one's understanding of, you know, how much grace is in justification or anything like that. But what it does do is it gives you some explanatory architecture for justification. That is not just God arbitrarily saying, well, you're not guilty because I said so because of this. It's saying, no, you're not guilty because my son's not guilty and you're united with him. It's a fuller explanation. okay? And if if Scripture had said the first one, I'd be the first one to say we can accept that because God does make the rules. God does make the rules. But what Scripture seems to suggest is that union with Christ is the basis of justification. Okay, and we already looked at. I've tried to make that clear here. I don't. I, I've at least tried to show four or five texts that demonstrate that union with Christ, is the basis for justification, and it's not just justification and then union with Christ comes after. Okay, any does that make sense? Are there any questions about that? How union with Christ provides a fuller explanation. For justification than a bare legal fiction, or to put it crudely, just because God said so? Which which oftentimes I want to just be so clear is still a great what reason to believe things. But it seems as though we're going on any questions about that? Any concerns about that? Yeah, you got a concern? You got a question? Yeah. What's the question? So, we're in union with Christ. Yeah. I am not righteous. Right. So is. Yes. So my unrighteousness doesn't sully his righteousness. Correct. To, so righteous. Right, correct. So right. right. yeah. yeah, yeah. Great point. Yeah, so let me just repeat it for the microphone. So, the point is well, we're in union with Christ. We're actually unrighteous, which is true. Christ is perfectly righteous. But, you know, our, we do not solely Christ's righteousness just because uh, we are in union with Him. And being in union with Christ does not automatically make us perfectly righteous. Although, one day it will. And that is part of that already, not yet. Okay? We are, as we're going to get... Oh, no, actually, I don't want to ruin it yet. We're going to see in a second we'll, that union with Christ will play a role... In us, we will never affect Christ's righteousness, but he will affect our unrighteousness. Our, you know, and, and we will be perfect, but not yet. OK, so, yeah, this just to re, uh, just a step back. We do want to make that distinction between the mystical union with Christ and then the this is this goes back to, I think, the very first one of the very first uh, uh, lessons. The mystical union with Christ that I said operates through the Holy Spirit. And I don't have time to go back through that at all. And then there's the position by proxy or the you get credit for it. OK, and I'm suggesting that the position by proxy that you get credit for Christ's righteousness is on the basis of the mystical union. Um, and, I, and I don't think scripture explains the metaphysics of how we are exactly. In fact, Paul explains it like a mystery, doesn't he? In Ephesians chapter five. I'm talking. He's talking about a husband and a wife and their their union, and he says, "I'm talking about." A, I know this sounds like a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church, and then he just leaves it there. He, he, I'm not sure he understood much more than. I mean, it's a mystery, but it is real. There is a mystical union. It doesn't solely Christ just because he's united to the church in in some mis- mystical way, but. Because of that union, we get credit for what Christ has done, what he has achieved for us. Good question. Any other questions, concerns, comments, observations? Okay, well, this is going to lead us now. Oh, yes, sir. I'm... I apologize. I didn't see your hand. Yes, sir. That's correct. One day we will be. That's correct. As well, as we will be at some point in the future. Yes. Will the guilt that we feel ever go away? Will the guilt that we feel go away? Yes, I think the guilt that we feel... The, the guilt goes away, I know that. But the guilt that we feel... The experience of guilt will, would be something feel like feel shame and... Without feeling of guilt. Yes, Absolutely. Yes, that's part of that. Yeah, and that's part of the whole story of, yeah, that that's part that is wrapped up in the whole story of redemption. Yeah, imagine a a renewed heaven and and a renewed earth where everyone was walking around feeling the weight of their condemnation. It's like, well, no, that's what Christ died to release us from, right? This we're not feeling the curse anymore. Uh, uh, one of Pastor Ben's favorite lines: "Far as the curse is found." That's how things are going to be, that's how consummately things are going to be redeemed. And guilt is part and parcel, you know, comes along, right along with uh, the curse. And so certainly um, feeling uh, the, the weight of shame and personal guilt and that heaviness um, is not going to have a place in the new heavens and new earth. Yeah. Yes, sir. I say. More than legal, it's no yes, I think um, so. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good way to tease it out. Yeah, that's well said. That's well said. It is not just a... a a bare legal decision, but it is something that, because the father is the judge and we are united to his son, that uh, that there is something explanatory there uh, past just a bare judgment. And I think relational is a good way to to say. It. I mean, provided you understand relational in the right way. But yes, I, I understand how, the way you're saying it. Yes, I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, really good. Let me just also say, you said, I, I, I still want to make this clarification, because I still argued that justification in the New Testament is primarily an eschatological term, and it's backed up into the present. There's an already, and then we'll have a not yet. I've already m- went through that. I do think it is possible to be a righteous person, though, just not perfectly righteous. I think it's possible to live an upright life. I think there are people like Job, who you could say, he's blameless. That doesn't mean they're sinful, Okay. There are people who live righteous lives before God, okay? And most of you, I'm glad to say, to all appearances are, are them, you know? So good on you. Well done. Keep believing the gospel. Repent, believe, fight, okay? There are people who live righteously. But not no one's, righteous, no, no one's righteousness, even the most heartfelt, is enough to stand before God to be justified in his sight. That's why in Romans 3, but now there's a righteousness that comes apart from the law. Okay, and that's the hope. That's the hope. Okay, well, this is going to take us, any other questions? All right, so this is going to take us full circle to one last text as it relates to union with Christ and justification, and it's probably the one that I get the most excited about personally, and that is in Romans chapter 4. So turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Do I have this one up here for you? Look at that. See, you don't even have to turn there. Romans chapter 4, at the end, uh, we've already talked about 1 through 8. He doesn't completely move on from that subject at all. In fact, he develops it. But toward the end of chapter 4, we read that the words it was counted or reckoned to him regarding Abraham were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And then the money line is in verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. Now, Pastor Ben knows this, and I think everyone here, do we have, oh, there's a couple people who aren't members. He knows that I love to ask in our membership interviews, what is the relationship of the resurrection to the gospel? And particularly, what is the, and by the way, I don't ask this specific question, but here's the question that this specific text calls us to ask. What is the relationship of the resurrection to justification? It's been pointed out recently how much of Reformed scholarship has just kind of passed over this question. Richard Gaffin especially has written about this. It's like a lot of theologists very curiously silent about how is exactly is the resurrection related to justification. So let me just ask before I go try to walk through that, what any any thoughts? In light especially i mean I don't maybe this is a hint maybe not, and especially in light of the already not yet tension, what you know about the resurrection or at least expectations for it what any ideas about how justification and, and resurrection christ related okay. Okay, so, all right, good. So Christ's Christ's resurrection was vindication for him. It demonstrated he was who he claimed to be and that he was not a fraud, right? He lived an acceptable life uh, before the Father was perfectly righteous. What else? Proof something to come. Okay, so it's proof that there's, okay, a down payment of something to come. Good, very good. Two really good pieces there. Two very critical pieces to the puzzle, I think. Anything else? Okay. So, let's recall, again, what the expectations were of Christ bringing the kingdom, and particularly a Jewish expectation of resurrection. What was the Jewish expectation of resurrection? Anyone know? It was that there was going to be a general resurrection of everyone on the last day. And in fact, that's exactly what we see confirmed in John 11. Remember after the death of Lazarus, what Jesus says to Martha? Your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. On the last day. Okay? recall then that the resurrection is an end time event an end time event we've already argued that justification is an end, is is essentially something that is still in time that is backed up into the present because of the already not yet nature of the kingdom what happened in the resurrection is that Jesus received an end-time reality, an imperishable resurrection body, in the middle of history. Okay? Jesus received an end-time reality, an imperishable resurrection body, not like Lazarus's, but he didn't receive it at the end. He's the only person who received it in the middle of history, and certainly there wasn't a Jewish expectation of a dying, much less a Messiah rising in the middle of history in a glorified body. That was not there. That was on no one's bingo card. Okay? But that is in fact what happens in the case of Jesus. This resurrection at the last day that everyone was expecting, all of a sudden Jesus receives this, in the middle of history, it is the presence of the future. So, this is why we read, I would suggest, in First Timothy 3.16, Paul saying, do I have this for you here? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, seen by angels proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is an old formula that, that, that clearly was a piece of tradition that had been said over and over and over, and it was very clear that the Spirit justified Christ, particularly as a reference to his resurrection and to Amy's, to Amy's point. Hey, Christ was justified, not meaning that he was a sinner that was you know, counted as righteous, he, it was this end-time justification that we have already talked about of, look, he obeyed. Look at his fruit. He was, in fact, the perfect son. He was, in fact, exactly who he declared to be. And even though he was treated like a fraud, and even though he was treated like someone who was a sinner and was literally made out to be someone under the curse of God, in fact, as a justification for him, the Spirit says, resurrection glorified, resurrected body. So the resurrection was the authoritative demonstration that Christ was in the right despite someone who was treated as being under the curse of God. He was the obedient son that he actually claimed to be and that his ministry bore out. He was not a fraud, which is exactly what end-time justification is as we've discussed it. Okay? Okay? So Jesus received an eschatological judgment over his life, but in the middle of history, and because we are united with him, we can receive the same judgment both then, certainly, but also now. But also now. Romans 3, we saw that. There's an already, not yet. So we can have this in time reality of justification in the middle of history, and of course, we too, in keeping with this already-not-yet phenomena, are also resurrected. We're also resurrected because we're union with Christ. Colossians 3.1 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Believers have been resurrected already. But they're not yet resurrected like they will be. Union with Christ already. Not yet. Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Okay? Okay. We have been raised up with Christ, and then here he gives this ethical command to walk in newness of life, but the whole point revolves around, just as Christ was, being, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we've been raised, and therefore we're called to live a resurrection life. That's why in the baptismal liturgy that you hear me do, I say, buried with Christ in death to sin and raised to live a resurrected life. Because that is, in fact, what's being symbolized, Okay? We are raised up with Christ. We are raised up with Christ already, but not yet how we will be. Christ is the one who received the not yet in the middle of history. That's what made it so singularly odd and so singularly amazing. An end-time verdict of glorification over his life as a son of God in the middle of history. Everyone else has to wait for the end of it. But because it happened, believers themselves can have hope. And so I think these realities in conjunction with Romans 4, 24, 25, 1 Timothy 3, 16, connect justification and Christ's resurrection and our resurrection in the most powerful way. They're, They're intertwined. And so if you're asking, well, does Christ's resurrection have to do with our initial justification or our end time justification? What's the answer? Yes. Yes, are right. Both. Both. Christ was raised to life for our justification. Justification, again, is one thing that kind of has two elements. Two aspects of it. And if you weren't here for that, and that sounds very bizarre to you, I don't have time to re-explain that. Just go check out some of the, the, the ones beforehand. There is an initial... Justification—that is the foundation by which we, upon which we stand before God, by faith. There is a final justification that is according to works, uh, and that is—I think—that is very clear in Scripture. Okay. Okay. All this then leads to, and you, you probably already, probably already get this now, but um, all of this leads to what I've called the ultimate argument for the perseverance of the saints be like the ultimate argument that, that people don't provide. Um, justification is an end-time concept backed up into the present. The first part of it has already been announced over believers' life, but if that's the case think about this with me it's not conceptually possible for someone who is justified to become unjustified if the end, in the order of explanation, the end comes, if the, the not yet comes before all, then the already, in the order of explanation, even though we experience the already first, it's not coherent. It's not coherent uh, any more than to say the uh, already part of the kingdom could come and the not yet not come. They're there two parts of the same thing, you see. Okay, there's the kingdom that Christ was bringing Understood as a whole as a kind of singular thing, and then the whole mystery, in one sense, was that it came in two phases. And now we inhabit the already phase. Um, let me give you a parallel example. Um, think about—I I remember when this was presented to me, and I remember wiggling it out, wiggling out of it, very poorly at some point in my Christian life. Someone asked me, "Do you believe you have?" A, and we're going through First John right now, so it just hit me afresh preparing for this. They said, do you have a, you believe when someone repents and believes the gospel, they have eternal life? I was like, well, yeah. Yeah, I do. They're like, okay. Well, then it's not possible to lose your salvation. And I was like, well, why would you say that? I mean, you have eternal life. That means life that you can't lose eternally. Well, but if you do this, you might, in other words, what I was trying to think, like if you've seen some, uh, some of these fantasy uh, series or whatever, I, was, I, was under, I understood it at one point. The way I was pushing back against that was this. Like, okay, here's my immortality ring. I'm not immortal, but here's my like, faith and my trust or whatever the case may be. And so long as I keep that ring on, I have eternal life. But that's not what it says, though. It doesn't say I have potentially indefinite life. For John especially, eternal life is something that we have now. And crucially, as we'll see in the sermon, our guaranteed promise for later. But, if, again, if if justification itself is something that is proclaimed from the end, backwards, so to speak, using some figurative language here, then again, it's not—it's not conceptually possible for someone to be justified and then not make it to the finish line justified. Their justification started down there. Does that make sense? I know for some people, it's very—the difference between the order of explanation and the chronological order. Does someone need to ask a question? Let me just—I'm um, gonna put a bow on the bow on the whole section, and and, and actually, I'm gonna. I'm going to intentionally end a little bit early here. I want to read an illustration. It's not mine. Um, It's from an unpublished paper. This theologian writes, Imagine at the final judgment where before the whole world God raises to life and declares by name those who are righteous before him. Imagine that at that judgment, there is an old school tin can intercom set up with a string on it that extends back in time to the present day. Okay, there's our setup. Right? In initial justification, what we experience now, what we have if we're in Christ now, in initial justification, God allows believers the privilege of placing their ear to the tin can. And hearing him from the future call their name before the whole world so that they can enjoy the end time verdict of sonship in advance. Woo, folks, that is awesome. That puts a difference, that, that should make you think about justification and new life. That should give you a certain kind of confidence. And what it should do is, again, it should help us to step back from our attempts at our proof texting and this and that uh, and say, listen, there is the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. All there are so many blessings of the kingdom that he was bringing, so many promises that he was bringing, and yet so many of them are fulfilled in an already not yet mannered. One kingdom. One kingdom, but all of these blessings, so many, I don't want to say all, I know someone could come up with a counterexample, but the, the, so many of them are experienced now because the kingdom has come. I have eternal life now, but I do not yet have it like I will. Okay? Uh, I, uh, God dwells in me now, but it won't be the same experience as the presence of God as it, as it will be. Okay? I've been raised up with Christ, but I haven't been raised up like I will be. Okay? And similarly, I have been justified, but I have not yet been justified as I, as I will be. Yes, sir? As you're talking uh, the is that the same? Is that kind of the already not yet? Like, yeah, so... Like, uh, okay. Well, finish that last sentence because it could go two different directions. Yes, yes. Is that the same thing, or is it Are you saying, is what the same thing? Is, are you saying the... Oh, yes, correct. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That fits in the category, yeah. Now, it, that, that would definitely fit in the category. So he's come to destroy the work of the devil. Okay, and in my theology, I would say that the reason the Great Commission can be successful is because the, the devil can't deceive the nations. Okay, I understand that's a very contentious assertion about Revelation chapter 20 that I'm not taking any time to defend, but I think that there is a there is a uh, sense in which uh, the devil has been conquered, and yet he has not fully been conquered. Okay, I think there's a, there's certainly a sense in which a sense in which death has been defeated. But it's still described in 1 Corinthians 15 as the last enemy, right? Already, not yet, okay? And so, if I, if I can, uh, if you leave this section of the union with Christ, and we're, well, I say that, we're gonna, you're going to see you can't get away from this already, not yet phenomena. Um, but, but, but if you don't remember anything from this particular section, I want you to remember how critical understanding the blessings of the kingdom as things that are already possessed, um, but not yet as they will be possessed, and critically, that includes resurrection and justification. For some reason, justification for a lot of people just gets pulled out, and it's its own little piece of theology way over here that doesn't fit into the already not yet. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's clearly it's very very clear that there is a future justification coming, but that we are justified already it is a piece of already not yet tension for sure. Any questions about that before I close us in prayer 3 or 4 minutes early? All right, so who can so who can who can tell me if in your own words if, if, anyone, if anyone wants to try, that's okay. I'm just, I thought I might as well ask. If someone were to ask you, what's the relationship between the resurrection of Jesus and justification after some of our discussion, what would you say? Yes. How does it turn out? How does it turn out? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Yes. Anything else? Any, anyone else want to try to uh, articulate how the resurrection of Jesus, Romans 4.25, relates to justification? Okay. Right? Like nobody after the marriage, nobody's like, Well now the prince is a peasant, right? She became loyalty. She wasn't a huh. peasant first. But because of that marriage brought her loyal, up she became loyalty. so it seems the way you describe that because of what you because of what marriage, right? That that's kind of no how justification is seen in the future. You, know, you were you were a peasant, right? Yeah. You were down here, you were but because of loves you, compared mm. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I think that's I think it's a great illustration in terms of especially going back to what Glenn talked about, even with union with Christ, like you become united to royalty, like royalty doesn't become a peasant. You become you become royalty. Yeah. Any other thoughts on Christ's resurrection, justification? Yes, Asher. Yeah, that was a lot there. That was good. That sounded great. Oh, that, you did that really fast. That, was that, that sounded really, really good. I have to confess. That, really well done. But, let, let, me, let me just close by, by saying, like, this would be my quick, my quick answer. Okay? We're united with Christ. Christ received end-time justification in the middle of history. Because we're united with a justified and raised Christ, we can be justified both now and then. Okay? He was raised to life for our justification. All right. This is really rich stuff. Turn this over in your head. Come ask me questions. Think about it more. And, uh, yeah, this is really beautiful. These are the things that really, really excite me. All right, let's pray together. God, we are thankful for the resurrection of Jesus and its relationship to righteousness. Him being vindicated and our vindication both now and then. So we pray that we would live like people who have been set free and have been justified from sin. That we would um, stand amazed by that kind of grace. That we'd press into it. That we'd continue to turn some of these themes over. If we don't fully understand them, that's okay. But that we would press in and see what beauty you have in store for us in these doctrines and how they affect our lives. We ask for your blessings in our next hour of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.